Hello and welcome to our new podcast, Downtown Drush. My name is Dr. Michal Bitton and I'm the Rosh Keila of the Downtown Minyan. I'm here with my colleague, Rabbi Joe Wolfson, who's the JLIC Rabbi at the Bronfman Center at New York University. Today we are recording some thoughts on the double Torah portion of Behar and Bechukotai, with which we will end our learning on the book of Aikra. So, hi Rabbi Joe, how's it going? Um, what are our parashiyot about? So these are two long parashiyot when they are put together. So let's try a super quick summary of them before we jump into them. Behar is the parasha which tells us the mitzvot of the land of Israel. It begins with Shemitah, the sabbatical year. It's not just human beings that like to have Shabbat one day off in seven. The land of Israel also benefits from one year off in seven. From there, we move to Yovel. Yovel is the 50th year, the Jubilee year, in which the land reverts to its original owners, in which slaves go free. From there, Parshat Behar moves to telling us about Shabbat and about prohibitions of idolatry and of charging of interest. At that point, we move into Bechukotai. Bechukotai is composed of what is called the Bracha and the Klala, the blessings and the curses which will come to Israel depending on whether or not they listen to God's commandments and follow his ways. It must be said that the Klala section, the curses section, is significantly longer than the blessings section. And the Parsha and indeed all of Sefer Vayikra ends with the chapter devoted to what is called Erechin, the pledges which are promised to the Bet HaMikdash, to the temple itself. It's a huge full parasha. I'm excited to explore it with you. This is indeed a really full parasha. And there's so many fascinating different institutions and laws, especially at the beginning in Behar, and especially around uh, Shemitah and all of the different agricultural ways of not working the land and of returning the land to their previous owners and of letting slaves go free during the Yovel, the 50th year of the Jubilee. Do you think that embedded in all of these institutions and practices, there is some lessons about what kind of ideal society we're supposed to live up to? I think that's absolutely right. If you think of the Torah as a whole as comprising on the one hand both a religious, a, a theological idea, this questions about God and his relationship to the world on the one hand. But the Torah is also a book about people and so society and how people interact with one another. I'm not sure I know a parsha in which these two ideas come together, the theological and the social, more than they do in Parshat Behar. And the real focus of it is the idea of the land. That's where it all really seems to start. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit more. What do you mean by that, the idea of the land? Well, the land, the phone, and of course we are speaking, we should say, about the land of Israel. Who does the land belong to? Now, of course, we don't want to get into into uh, contentious uh, modern political questions of the Middle East, but I think that one would... People... Uh, would casually assume that the Torah, the, the Bible, tells us that the Jewish people are the possessors of the land that is given to them by God. Well, our parasha actually seems to make 
a more complicated claim than that. The key idea in the Parsha is really in chapter 25. It's talking to us about the sale of the land. We are allowed to, of course, own property. And in that sense, the Torah absolutely does recognize private property. That's a very important point when having social economic discussions about the Torah. However, we are then told, Ha'aretz lo timacher litzmitut. This is verse 23. The land cannot be sold for perpetuity or for eternity. Rather, in the Jubilee year, everything goes back. Kili ha'aretz. Because the land belongs to me, says God. To me, not to you, the Jewish people. Kigeirim v'toshavim atem imadi. You are strangers and residents in this land. Right, so, so you know, Rabbi Joe, it's interesting. You said you wanted us to not really get into contentious political issues around the, the land of Israel, but this is a window to other contentious issues that are very much alive in our society, um, which have to do with, you know, different ideals and values about, you know, economic theory and what should the distribution of property look like. And you just said that this pasuk actually stands in tension with uh, certain ideas that are at the heart of capitalism, um, like like private ownership, right? Because actually you said it doesn't stand in tension. The Torah does believe in private ownership. But at the same time, this pasuk says, no, the land belongs to Hashem, to God, which is why Hashem can tell us what to do with the land, when to work it, when to give it back to the original owners, uh, and things like that. So, so how do you reconcile, I guess, or can you reconcile between... Uh, private ownership, um, and then this pasuk that actually claims the Torah belongs to God and not to its humans' inhabitants? Well, that's that's such a profound question, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard uh, many times people asking the question of where does the Torah fit in between capitalism and socialism? What is the Torah's view on poverty and you know, uh, society's... Uh, obligation towards it. Now, our chapter is the answer to that question. I, I, re I really do believe. Um, before, let, let's, let's take, let's sort of... Wait, what, what's the answer? What's the answer? <laughs> well, the answer is that the Torah combines elements of both. It recognizes, as we have said, the uh, absolute sort of sanctity of private property between human beings on the one hand. On the other hand, there is a, um, not just a social, uh, um, not just a, a, a web to, um, to catch those who are falling on hard times as a sort of a moral imperative, but actually it's deeply baked into the legislation that somebody who is falling upon hard times our chapter tells us, it gives a story of how somebody can become, become impoverished in this free society and gives the tikkun, gives the remedy for how to prevent that. It tells us a story of a person who sells their land, attempts to redeem it, and in the struggle to it ends up having to sell himself in, to avoid, uh, to avoid uh, falling so pardon me, in order to pay off his debts all together. That is the story of that is told in our chapter. And this sort of key covenantal idea is that God does own the land. That is the 
the, what buttresses the Torah's claim that we have to look out for people who are falling upon hard times. This is not out of your own altruism, but understanding that whatever it is you have or society has is a gift from God. Right. In a sense, I feel like this, uh, these chapters in Behar and, and Shemitah uh, specifically actually serve to problematize or to challenge both socialism and capitalism. Uh, it, it, like you just mentioned, it really uh, destabilizes the capitalist notion that we own everything, right? And that we can have this um, sort of pursuit, unlimited pursuit after wealth with no a notion of the consequences and the social inequality that might, uh, you know, build over generations. So in that sense, uh, it does very much um, provide a, a sort of tension to capitalist society. But it's also not exactly like a socialist nirvana um, sort of vision. I mean, um, you know, Shemitah is the seventh year in which you don't work the land and it belongs to, to everybody. But all the other years, you know, um, you get to own your land and work it. And there definitely are wealthier people and poorer people. Uh, so it's not, you know, it's not this Marxist vision of kind of the state taking everything and dividing it uh, equally and to have this material view of, uh, of equality in society. Uh, it's, it's an interesting place in between there. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's definitely correct. And I think the challenge that it, it puts to us as moderns who are used to a modern political system, it doesn't matter whether you are on the left or, or the right, in, in most political discourse, the shared assumptions do not include God in that framework. And I think that the idea of God as an owner here is really a very challenging one. There's this um, fascinating halakha, which tells us that um, in the Torah society, a person is obligated to give charity, to give tzedakah. And if they don't give it, it can be coerced. Uh, from them. They can be forced to give it. Now, a lot of the commentators have difficulty with that because this idea of coercing positive mitzvot is not something which we normally do. A person is not uh, you know, forced to make kiddush on a Friday night, but they are forced to give tzedakah. And the classic explanation, and it's really very widespread, it's, you know, and these are, these are great rabbis and scholars, these are not you know, uh, uh, political writers, uh, the answer of the Ketzot and the Kesef Mishnah, is that a person is forced to give tzedakah because the money doesn't really belong to them. The money belongs to God and is given by God to the person who is in need. Now, that might sound like a more socialist idea, but I think it's a very challenging one to wherever you are on the spectrum in modern times. Yeah, and I would actually, I, I don't think you're thinking in these terms, but there's an additional challenge that we're not naming here. Because when it comes to this context in the parasha, we like, we like the claim that God owns the land and that Hashem is telling us to redistribute it in a way that is more equitable and, and kinder and more compassionate. But we also have so many moments in human history in which humans use the same claim saying that God gave them uh, ownership to another person's land. And as such, they, they were able to take it. I was just reading over Shabbat, um, uh, uh, Jill Lapore's, am I saying her name right? Jill Lapore's, uh, this truth, which is a history of the United States. And I was just taken aback by how so much of European uh, imperialism and the way that they, they took the land away from Native Americans and basically declared it ownerless 
was based on a theological belief that their Christian God was giving the land to them, that they that that they were deserving of that land. So, so I think I always find it really important and complicated to tease out not only theological questions about God, but also sociological ones. Like when is God used in a way that is redeeming, right? That serves the way that I believe that the Torah serves, right, in this case, as a way to make society better. But also as religious people, how can we be careful to pay attention and to make sure that we are equally conscious of moments in which God can be used as a way to oppress people. Right, and sorting out the difference between the two, which is a, a genuine and beautiful example of it, or where it's being used in a terrible way, is, is so much of the work, so much of the work. So that's an amazing discussion, Michal, thank you for that, on Parshat Behar and this amazing interrelationship between society and theology and God and the land and the notion of Israel as strangers in their own land. Um, but let's uh, also consider that this is one of the classic double parashiot, and we also have Bechukotai as well. And does Bechukotai present a similar message to Behar, or does it actually take us in a different direction? Yeah, I'll just start by being honest. I, I would so much rather stay in Behar if I could. Bechukotai is much harder for me. Uh, Bechukotai is really different, because we shift from talking about this um, really agricultural society when the Israelites entered the land of Israel and how we're supposed to engage in the messy process of, of property and ownership and, and trying to care for those who are vulnerable and figure things out you know, in, our, in our daily lives. And then Bechukotai kind of like almost shifts point of views and shifts context and it becomes this like grand vision of promises and, and curses and blessings and, and, and terrible consequences that God... Um, essentially promises the, the Israelites and the Jewish people based on their behavior. Uh, we essentially read an accounting of the future. If we listen to God, we are going to get uh, amazing blessings, most of them very most of the material blessings, I would say. Uh, and if we don't listen to God, we are going to, you know, just experience some of the most difficult and devastating curses that humankind could ever dream of. So Bahal feels to you quite comfortable because it's a, a religious way of doing uh, society and politics, and, and that's what uh, that's what we love doing. Bechukotai is difficult because it suddenly lifts all of that up into a whole another level of sort of uh, covenantal caprice. Is that it? Well, I, I think um, I mean I'll just speak for myself, and I'll be honest here. And, and part of my relationship with with the Torah is that I, I try to lean in into the areas that I struggle with, as opposed to trying to resolve them easily. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll just name it. I, I struggle um, uh, through two two different lenses, uh, through dif two different perspectives. Number one, I struggle with the theological implications embedded here. That uh, like, what does our covenant with God looks like if God tells us? If you don't behave, I'll give you all of these terrible punishments. And these are like awful punishments that we've lived in our Jewish history. So in a sense, this reading of Jewish history means that we look backwards at different tragedies and devastations. And instead of mourning our death, uh, sorry, instead of mourning the, those who, um, who were killed uh, or, or who died, we actually have to say, well, we deserve this. You know, we, God should have hurt us in this and this way. I'll share with you an idea, Michal, which I'm guessing you're not going to like, 
but it, it's worth sharing it uh, in, in any in any case as, as a way of thinking about this parasha. I, I think I heard this from Rabbi Yaakov Meidan, who used the um, analogy of a ketubah for our parasha. It's a funny thing, a ketubah, when you think about it. I'm sure you've thought about it. Um, but a ketubah, we you know, is hung up by many people on their walls, this, uh, this document, when a couple are married, which, at least in the traditional sense, does not seem to be the uh, a traditional ketubah, does not seem to be the most obviously romantic document. Uh, in fact, it, it details you know, what happens under the circumstances in which, either through divorce or death, uh, the couple are no longer together. Rav Meidan's uh, argument and suggestion was that in the same way in which a couple cherish a ketubah, and it's read under the chuppah and the like, even though it contains, um, you know, the place that you don't want to get to in the marriage, divorce or death. That's what Parashat B'chukotai is as well. These terrible things, sufferings, famine, terrible, terrible things, are actually still embedded within the covenant. They're still a part of the relationship, rather than what happens when the relationship is no longer there. Uh, yeah, uh, you, I think you, you guessed correctly that <laughs> that... that <laughs> <laughs> the metaphor uh, won't work. I'm just trying to help. No, it's all good. You might have made it worse. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the metaphor breaks down in many ways because none of us enter a marriage with a ketubah that tells us, hey, if you don't listen to me, I will hurt you in X, Y, and Z way. It's more about what kind of financial support you give or, or do not give in this uh, marriage contract. But actually, this, I think, um, you know, thinking about a ketubah and like kind of like a marriage relationship can bring us to a different aspect uh, of Bechukotai, of, of which is not only about the curses, but also about the blessings. And this is also an area that, that you know, I have questions on, because uh, the way that the brachot are laid out basically say, well, if you listen to me, I will give you a lot of things, such as uh, rain and good harvest and, and really wealth uh, and prosperity and peace. Uh, and if you have all this, you will also have many children. And once you accomplish this, material well-being, God says, Hashem says, I will dwell upon you. So we also have some sort of spiritual reward. And I always found something almost difficult uh, about this, that it, it reminded me, it makes me think, like, is, is Hashem almost like trying to to bribe us with like a physical reward? Like, follow me so that I will give you an easy life, a good a good and prosperous life. And that's not usually the way that that I conceptualize a relationship with God or, or the Berit, the covenant, and what it's supposed to to symbolize. So, and it's very different to Parshat Behar, isn't it? So how is it different? Tell me more. Well, Parshat Behar seemed to um, describe a society in which it functions as the way in which the world works. Somebody is going through good times financially, someone's going through bad times financially, they borrow, they try to repay how the society is set up in order to accommodate that and in order to try to make sure that people don't fall too far it does the the sense of causation if you like is is is, is a human one and the religious imperatives fit around that whereas the causation in the chukotai is very clear in if you listen to my commandments and you do them then the the good will happen 
But I do think it's, it's interesting that the idea that our basic physical sustenance is the greatest gift from God. I think that that is, uh, you know, before we get to anything uh, of a sort of you know, high, uh, you know, a high level uh, in sort of an idealistic sense, it's rains at the right time, crops at the right time, being able to sleep through the night because there isn't war in the land. That's that's the most basic blessing that people could want. And perhaps if you're so used to having them, you take them for granted. Yeah, I think you're making me think about this this moment, you know, in this uh, global pandemic in which there's so much uncertainty and, um, you know, identities destabilized and financial systems um, at the verge of collapse. Uh, that there is something there about being uh, promised a relationship with God that manifests in in God taking care of you and making sure that you're okay and your and your kids are fine. There's something very loving about it. Right, almost you almost sort of stretching for a parental metaphor there. As long as we don't go to the klalot and apply the parental message there as well, <laughs> there is something uh, there is something parental here. And you know, I, I feel it this way with my kids. Uh, all I want is to you know keep them safe give them as good a life as I can give them and the opportunities to to have a, to have what they need to thrive. Right. Right. That's that, that's 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 very that's very beautiful. Do you think, Michal, there's anything that we can take really from the coupling together of these parshiot? We've said how the parshiot seem to express different ideas from one another. Perhaps if we could you know, put it in this way Parashat Behar is almost like reading a newspaper um, in terms of sort of the current events that it describes and telling us what our attitude towards them should be. Bechukotai, however, is, is more like reading uh, a book of Nuvuah, a book of prophecy of you know, God t telling us uh, uh, things that are going to happen one way or another. What do we get from the coupling of them together? Uh, I think that's a really interesting question. Uh, and thinking about this, Maybe what juxtaposition of Behar and Bechukotai really accomplishes is that it provides different visions of the good or different visions of the kind of, mm. of dreams of the dreams that we might hold, right? So one dream could be the dream embedded in Behar, which is how do we build a human messy society that yearns to do good uh, by people, even if it doesn't create this perfect utopia. And even if some people are still poor and struggling, there's something very... Um, powerful about creating a society that uses human systems uh, to become better. And then the Chukotai, at least the blessings part, is offering a different sort of utopia in which Hashem kind of sweeps in and fixes things and no one is ever hungry. And there's something very idealistic and idyllic, um, right. idyllic right. there. Huh. And do you think that that can have an application to this present moment? You know, the, recently a, a colleague of mine actually shared something um, with me that I thought I thought was really interesting. He was talking about a book called uh, Good to Great, um, in which the book discussed something called the Stockdale Paradox, uh, which I never heard of beforehand. And uh, the Stockdale Paradox was named after Admiral Jim Stockdale, who survived for years as a prisoner of war of the Vietnam War. Uh, and somehow him and his fellow prisoners of war were able to survive at much higher rates and for a longer time than, after, than other prisoner of wars uh, from the war. And many people wanted to know, like, 
how did you do so? What, what helped you? What distinguished you to help you be able to withstand this tremendously challenging uh, time period in a better way than others? Um, and, and what the Stockdale paradox really teaches us is that Admiral Jim Stockdale and his fellow prisoner of wars, really what they did differently is that they were able to have this vision of, of eventual freedom, right, of eventual redemption, but at the same time, they were continuously confronting the challenges of their daily, everyday life uh, under captivity. They didn't, for example, tell themselves, oh, okay, we're going to suffer a lot, but in a week, things are going to be resolved, or like very soon, things are going to get better. Uh, instead, they kind of like were able to know, okay, it might be far off. We're still going to have redemption one day, but in the here and now, we have to contend with this with this terrible um difficult reality is it being able to keep sort of two different ideas almost contradictory ideas in play at the same time i think so i think is to have this this human uh, ability to on the one hand have the the faith right it's, it's a monite's faith uh, that good days will come and that darkness will give way to light but at the same time and that's the hukotai the first bit of the Chukotai. Right, thank you. Yeah, that's the Chukotai, to have this long-term vision uh, of the messianic ideal, perhaps, uh, of the redemption that will come at the end of days. Uh, and at the same time, to be able to live, to lean into the imperfect, and for him, brutal, uh, here and now, which would be Parashat Behar, uh, and which I think can offer us some lessons for, for today. What does it mean to, to know that this pandemic will end and that we have to think about the day after? And at the same time, to, to also lean into the challenges uh, that we are engaged in and confronting on a daily basis. Hmm. That, that's, that's so beautiful. And maybe it's even a fitting idea with which to conclude Sefer Vaikra as a whole. Because I'm sort of thinking that, uh, Michal, we've made it through a whole Sefer of, the, of, of Humash and one which some might think is one of the most challenging uh, ones. And we're in a very different place at the end from where we started. That Vayikra, as it begins, is about korbanot, sacrifices, and the, the kohanim, the priests. And I think that's what a lot of people associate Vayikra with. But right now, we're no longer with, the, uh, with that. We are with society. We're with uh, people struggling, uh, as people do in their lives, and we are trying to provide answers to that, whether the practical day-to-day -day answers of Behal or the sort of long-term vision of, of Bechukotai, which you've just outlined. So I think that's a beautiful point at which to sort of end our journey through Vaikra. This is the Downtown Drash podcast. It's a project of the Brompton Centre for Jewish Life, OUJLIC, and the Downtown Minyan. We have made our way through Sefer Vayikra, and we are extremely excited to begin next week's Sefer Bamidbar. Thank you for listening to our conversation. We hope you'll join us next time. <laughs>